Yashodanandana Vrajjana Ranjana Yashodanandana Vrajjana Ranjana Jamuna Vishnupad Paramhamsa Parivraja Kasharjashtara Shishimad AC Bhakta Vilanta Swami Srila Prabhupada Ki Anantakota Vaishnavrinda Ki All Glories the Assembled Devotees All Glories the Assembled Devotees All Glories the Assembled Devotees All Glories All Glories to Shishiguru and Gauranga All Glories to Srila Prabhupada Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Today is Tuesday, February 4th, 2020, and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 5, Narada's Instructions on Srimad Bhagavatam for Vyasadeva, Text 22. Tasha 
Yadutamashloka gunan nuvananam Idam hipum shastapasya srutasya va Svishtasya shuktasya chabudi datyo Avichyuto ritaka vibhir nirupito Yadum tamashloka gunanavarnanam Idam this, he, certainly, Pumsha, of everyone, Tapasha, by dint of austerities, Shutasya, by dint of study of the Vedas, Va, or, Shrishtasya, sacrifice, Suktasya, spiritual education, cha, and, buddhi, culture of knowledge, datayo, charity, avichuta, infallible, artha, interest, kavibhi, by the recognized learned person, Nirupita concluded yet what Uttamashloka the Lord who is described by choice poetry poetry Guna Anuvananam description of the transcendental qualities of Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Learned circles have positively concluded that the infallible purpose of the advancement of knowledge, namely austerities, study of the Vedas, sacrifice, chanting of hymns and charity, culminates in the transcendental descriptions of the Lord, who is defined in choice poetry. Purport. Human intellect is developed for advancement of learning in art, science, philosophy, physics, chemistry, psychology, economics, politics, etc. By culture of such knowledge, the human society can attain perfection of life. This perfection of life culminates in the realization of the Supreme Being, Vishnu. The Shruti therefore directs that those who are actually advanced in learning should aspire for the service of the Lord. Of Lord Vishnu. Unfortunately, persons who are enamored by the external beauty of Vishnu, Maya, do not understand that culmination of perfection or self-realization depends on Vishnu. Vishnu Maya means sense enjoyment, which is transient and miserable. Those who are entrapped by Vishnu Maya utilize advancement of knowledge for sense enjoyment. Sri Narada Muni has explained that all paraphernalia of the cosmic universe is but an emanation from the Lord out of his different energies, because the Lord has set in motion by his inconceivable energy 
the actions and reactions of the created manifestation. They have come to be out of his energy. They rest on his energy, and after annihilation, they merge into him. Nothing is therefore different from him. But at the same time, the Lord is always different from them. When advancement of knowledge is applied in the service of the Lord, the whole process becomes absolute. The personality of Godhead in his transcendental name, fame, glory, etc. are all non-different from him. Therefore, all the sages and devotees of the Lord have recommended that the subject matter of art, science, philosophy, physics, chemistry, psychology, and all other branches of knowledge should be holy and solely applied in the service of the Lord. Art, literature, poetry, painting, etc. may be used in glorifying the Lord. The fiction writers, poets, and celebrated literators are generally engaged in writing of sensuous subjects, but if they turn towards the service of the Lord, they can describe the transcendental pastimes of the Lord. Valmiki was a great poet, and similarly, Vyasadeva is a great writer, and both of them have absolutely engaged themselves in delineating the transcendental activities of the Lord, and by doing so have become immortal. Similarly, science and philosophy also should be applied in the service of the Lord. There is no use presenting dry speculative theories for sense gratification. Philosophy and science should be engaged to establish the glory of the Lord. Advanced people are eager to understand the absolute truth through the medium of science, and therefore a great scientist should endeavor to prove the existence of the Lord on a scientific, scientific basis. Similarly, philosophical speculations should be utilized to establish the supreme truth as sentient and all-powerful. Similarly, all other branches of knowledge should always be engaged in the service of the Lord. In the Bhagavad Gita, also the same is affirmed. All knowledge not engaged in the service of the Lord is but nescience. Real utilization of advanced knowledge is to establish the glories of the Lord, and that is the real import. Scientific knowledge engaged in the service of the Lord and all similar activities are all factually harikirtana, or glorification of the Lord. I'm going to read the verse one more time. Learned, circle, learned circles have positively concluded that the infallible purpose of the advancement of knowledge, namely austerities, study of the Vedas, sacrifice, chanting of hymns and charity, culminates in the transcendental descriptions of the Lord, who is defined in choice poetry. I was born in the darkest ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Shri Chaitanya Manovistam Stapitam Jena Bhutale Swayam Rukapadamayam Tadatitswa Padantikam When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who has established within this material world the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vancha kalpa tarubhyasya kripa sindhubhyavasya patita anam pavanevyo vaishnavevyo namo namaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto all the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. 
They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone. And they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunitya I offer my respectful obeisance unto Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Sri Advaita, Gadadhar Pandit, Shivas Thakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So we're continuing this discussion between Narada Muni and Vyasadeva in and Narada Muni is instructing Vyasadeva to be sure to include what is the goal of life, what is the perfection of life in his writings um, that he's compiling of the Vedas. And we've discussed previously that this um, perfection or goal in life is to understand who we are and to realize our position as eternal servants of Krishna, God. So today we're going to focus um, on knowledge, as we can tell in the verse and in the purport. Knowledge plays a very big part in today's role, in today's verse. So we'll discuss knowledge, and then we'll discuss where we can attain that knowledge and the role of the spiritual master in helping us do so. So if we look at the definition of knowledge... Knowledge is defined as facts, information, and skills acquired by a person through experience or education, the theoretical or practical understanding of a subject. So there's a few ways that we can gather knowledge. Um, You know, we have our senses, which are imperfect, which can help us gather knowledge. Our senses are kind of like fact-finding senses, right? We have our eyes to see, so we have um, vision, but we, we have limited vision. For instance, I can't see past the wall, and I can barely see past those windows because they're um, obscure, you know. And so I can only know what's going on out there if somebody tells me what's going on, or I go out there and see myself. But from here, I can't know. And you can see we're in a windowless room, so... I can't really tell you what the weather is outside unless I look it up or somebody tells me, oh, my God, it's raining outside. So, again, limited, right? I'm limited in my sight. And what because I'm limited in my sight, I'm limited in the amount of knowledge or information I can acquire. We have limited hearing. We have limited touch. Like, I can only touch what's in front of me, what I can feel. Limited taste, limited smell, um, Some people have a stronger sense of smell than others. Some smells don't even, they can't even register. Taste is the same thing. You know, our taste buds are there, but some people can't taste certain types of um, flavors uh, or certain types of flavors bother them and others don't. So all of these things are limited, and we are gathering knowledge from imperfect senses. So the knowledge that we gather will be imperfect. From a, um, I guess, a scientific perspective, there's a few ways of, there's two, I guess there are two sides of gathering knowledge. One's called a priori, which means it depends on knowledge that we can um, derive without experience. Um, 
It's knowledge that we are taught, but it doesn't require experience. A good example of um, a priori knowledge is mathematics or mathematical equations. Two plus two equals four, but I don't need to gather two objects and another two objects to know that two plus two equals four, that to know that I would have four objects. So that's a priori knowledge like that I've already um, had. It's also known as reasoning. A posteriori knowledge is gained by having an experience and then using logic and reflection to derive understanding from it. And then your knowledge is based on observation. This is called inductive reasoning. And it's flawed because everyone's experiences are subjective and open to interpretation. For instance, you know, um, my dad had a beard and then I meet someone else's dad who has a beard, and therefore I conclude all dads have beards. right? So that's not a logical conclusion based on my limited experience. Maybe from my perspective, every dad I met had a beard, but that doesn't mean that every dad in the world has a beard. Um, and that's kind of similar to if we look at explicit knowledge versus tacit knowledge. Explicit knowledge is that, that which is re- recorded and written down, um, and it's passed on from one person to another. It could be in the, you know, the form of a book. It could be the form of um, databases. It's organized systematically. It can be transferred from one person to another or one person to thousands of people. Um, example of this would be like books, libraries, databases. Tacit knowledge is difficult to pass on. Um, this is like things that we would think of like music, art, um, things that I, you know, you can learn, but you can't really learn. You can know some of the technical parts of it, but to actually have rhythm, that's something that's more, um, I guess, practice through consistent and, um, you know, it's not something that I could learn from reading a book. I would have to have someone actually teach me and show me. Um, And that's the same thing with propositional knowledge versus non-propositional knowledge, which is, um, you know, propositional knowledge is how to do something. You can look at a pamphlet. You can look at a manual. You can look at a textbook, and it shows you how to do something. But non-propositional knowledge is that you can only learn by acquiring so I can read a book on coding, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I know how to code. I would have to show someone, have someone show me how it is that to code, and then I would have to have tons of experience to know, okay, this worked and this didn't work, and kind of then use, you know, store that information and go back and forth with it. So as you can see, that our knowledge is very limited, right? Even our sight is limited. You know, if you take science. We can use our knowledge to expand our sight a little bit. For instance, we can create an x-ray, and I can see through certain things, you know, objects, shapes through a wall. Or I can create a microscope, and I can see things that are very tiny. But still, I can't see everything, right? I can only see certain things. I can only um, catch so much. So in... In um, today's verse, we're talking about that this knowledge is um, imperfect if we don't apply it to Krishna. First of all, our knowledge is imperfect. 
So we have to come to someone who has perfect knowledge. And all this knowledge in the world, if we don't use it for Krishna, it becomes useless. We've been discussing um, pleasure in this world, seeking pleasure, seeking relief from miseries. And we've been discussing how in the material world, these things are temporary. Pleasure is temporary. Pain is temporary. Um, The miseries that we experience, the joys that we experience, everything's temporary and it's cyclical. And we want to get back to our constitutional position of eternal spiritual bliss. And that is true knowledge, right? That's what we're trying to pursue. But if we're studying things that don't really teach us that, then they only teach us how to pursue happiness or joy temporarily, right? So a lot of the um, knowledge that we have or that we're looking at in learning in school or in learning in the world is how to um, enjoy, you know, better. It's like more facilities to enjoy. So we have to look at what is true knowledge. So in Bhagavad Gita 1820, if we look at knowledge in terms of the three modes of material nature, in 1820, it says that knowledge by which one undivided spiritual nature is seen in all living entities, though they are divided into innumerable forms, you should understand to be in the mode of goodness. So what this means that is a person, and this is according to the purport of 1820, a person who sees one spirit soul in every living being, whether that person, that living being is human, is um, dog, cat, animal, beast, um, fish, demigod, but they see that each has an individual soul and a super soul, then that person is in possession of knowledge in the mode of goodness. And then that knowledge in 1821, um, by which one sees that in every different body there's a different type of living entity, you should understand to be in the mode of passion. So this is the concept that the material body is the all-in-all, is the living entity, and destruction of the body um, also means the destruction of consciousness. So this is knowledge in the mode of passion. And that knowledge by which one is attached to one kind of work as the all-in-all without knowledge of the truth, and which is very meager, is said to be in the mode of darkness. So this is the type of knowledge that most of us are pursuing, right? Satisfaction of bodily demands. How do I get a roof over my head? How do I get food on my table? How do I have nice clothes, nice car, nice jewelry? How do I feel comfortable? You know, how can I feel good? Um, And this is basically what Prabhupada calls animal knowledge, right? The knowledge of how to eat, sleep, mate, and defend. And human knowledge is meant for more than that. These things are kind of automatic, right? We get hungry, we know it's time to eat, we get tired, we know it's time to sleep. You know, if somebody's um, threatening us, we can defend. And when it comes time to procreate, we can mate. However, there's more to it, right? So when we're in the mode of goodness... We know that um, we're not this body and that there's more to our lives than just what this body can achieve. And then in the mode of passion, um, this is when we can 
think about, oh, what is life? What is the meaning of life? But we're not really thinking about the true meaning of life. And we're looking at it from this one life that we have. You hear the term, you only live once. And in some way, I guess in one way that's true. We only live once in this body. But we know that as spirit souls, we live eternally and we have many bodies that we inhabit lifetime after lifetime. So in that sense, we don't live only once. We live many, many times. And then in the mode of um, darkness or ignorance, it's just all about keeping the body comfortable. And that's exactly what we've been talking about is that all three of these things are there, even the mode of goodness is still not complete because we want to have transcendental knowledge. And that's what Narada Muni is explaining to Vyasadeva, that this is the kind of knowledge that we want to have in the Srimad Bhagavatam, um, in the Vedas, not just knowledge of how to keep the body comfortable, knowledge of, you know, what more is there, um, how can you uh, live in this life, you know, that and then to know more than that we're just not we're not this body. So that's the first step of attaining true knowledge is to realize that we're not this body, but it's not the last step. So beyond that is transcendental knowledge, which is that we are eternal servants of Krishna. In Bhagavad Gita 13.3, um, Krishna says, You should understand that I am also the knower in all bodies, and to understand this body and its knower is called knowledge. So this is how he describes knowledge. Prabhupada says in the purport, One who studies the subject matter of the field of activity and the knower of the field very minutely can attain to knowledge. He goes on to say, Perfect knowledge of the constitution of the body, the constitution of the individual soul, and the constitution of the supersoul is known in terms of Vedic literature as jnana. Real knowledge is to know that the supersoul is the controller of both the field of activities and the finite enjoyer. So we discussed last time about how we want to control, but actually Krishna, God, is the supreme controller. He um, is really the only one that controls anything. So, you know, he controls both the field of activities and us. We're the finite enjoyer, you know, just like Krishna, who's the um, unlimited enjoyer. He, we are parts and parcels of him, so we have this tendency to enjoy as well, but we have a finite, limited capacity to do so. There's a quote I came across that I thought was really interesting by William Shakespeare, and he says, Ignorance is the curse of God. Knowledge is the wing wherewith we fly to heaven. So even in Christianity, it's understood that knowledge is meant to help us achieve God, right? to um, shed the mortal coil and achieve more than just what's on earth. So then um, how do we know, how do we learn what this absolute knowledge is? And Bhagavad Gita 334 Krishna says, just try to learn the truth by approaching a spiritual master. Inquire from him submissively and render service unto him. The self-realized souls can impart knowledge unto you because they have seen the truth. So this is the main point, is that we can't know by our own limited senses, our limited um, quest, our limited uh, um, encounter of knowledge, 
what is true and absolute knowledge. For instance, pretty much everything has to be told to us. I mean, when we're born, we our mother tells us who our father is, right? So even that, we learn from that. Um, we go to school and we're taught the basic mathematical equations of 2 plus 2 plus 4, then we can learn it, that, then we know it. So everything we either learn by being taught or by experience, but we're only limited by the knowledge that is imparted to us from the person teaching us or by the experiences that we have. And so we have to inquire from someone submissively. And that's the key point. We have to inquire submissively um, from a spiritual master who has seen the truth, who understands and has studied the Vedas and understands what the absolute truth is. And the absolute truth is that Krishna is God. He's the supreme personality of Godhead. And we are parts and parcels of him, but we are also his servants. We're eternal servants. So we are not this body. We are spirit souls. And we are servants of Krishna. I mean, that's the absolute truth distilled down to its essence. right? So that's basically what we're trying to learn, what we're trying to realize when we study the Gita, when we study um, Srimad Bhagavatam, when we... Uh, read these books when we chant our japa when we do mantra meditation this is what we're trying to realize and so when we come across um, a bona fide spiritual master then we can make sure we can know that we are headed in the right direction you know sometimes people think well i'll just i know i i'll go based on my understanding and what i'm um my experiences and what I've been taught and what I know from my limited, you know, knowledge finding um, ability. But we know that that's not the all in all. There's parts of it that can happen, right? We have Krishna, the super soul, sitting within our heart, guiding us. And, you know, sometimes he's whispering to us. And if we are very quiet and still and calm and calm our minds, we can hear what he has to say. It's very hard to do that. And it's very hard to know for sure if what we're hearing is our own mind or if it's Krishna. So really it comes down to having someone guide you in that way. And a spiritual master doesn't take advantage of the disciple. The spiritual master has one duty and one duty only, and that is to guide the disciple to serve Krishna, to serve his guru, and all the gurus before him, as well as Krishna. So we can understand that if our spiritual master is guiding us in a way that doesn't lend us towards Krishna, then this may not be a bona fide spiritual master. And if what he's telling us is actually helping us release our attachments, you know, these things that are keeping us attached to the material world, our possessions, um, seeking pleasure, then, you know, we can understand that this is a true spiritual master help guiding us. Sometimes, though, you know, our minds can still play tricks on us. You know, sometimes when I am talking to... Um, well, right now, because, you know, Tamal Krishna Goswami, who's my guru, is no longer on this earth, sometimes if I need guidance, I go to either Ritsatva Maharaj or Giraj Swami. And there have been times where Giraj Swami will doesn't really give me like an instruction or an order. You know, kind of, you kind of know when he doesn't 
thinks something is right, he'll say, well, if that's what you think. Right? So he's very diplomatic about it. And there have been, um, without going into too much details, there's been something that you know, like I wanted to do. And so I approached him and said, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And he's like, well, if that's what you want to do. And, you know, it was what I wanted to do. And so I took that as a blessing, which I knew for in my heart it wasn't. And, you know, like I said, like I've said in previous classes, I need more than one way of things being told to me. So, you know, like in the next few weeks, the same message came across different mediums. Even in people that weren't devotees, they would say something and I'd be like, oh, that's in regard to, that's Krishna talking to me in regards to this one dilemma that I had. And then, you know, like in this one case, I went a long time before I reversed my course of action. And until I reversed my course of action, it was like misery at every turn. And, you know, it was hard to see that that was the cause of it until I reversed the course of action. And then I thought, oh, this is the problem. I was disobeying the instructions of my spiritual master, even though it wasn't an explicit instruction. It was something that I knew that he didn't think was the best thing for me. And, you know, Krishna's very merciful, Guru's very merciful, that the moment I thought, okay, this is not what I'm supposed to do, and I turned around to to set myself back on the right path, it was like they were waiting for me to turn back. And the moment I turned back, they just showered their mercy on me, right? So just then that difference of, you know, that short time span of go being on the wrong path and then turning and the difference in the amount of mercy that I was under, like feeling was so vast, it was another like confirmation that yeah, that what I was doing was wrong. So that was a combination of the super soul within my heart as well as external. And you know, Maya, we talked about last time, Maya is the material energy of Krishna. And Maya, her entire job is to keep us entangled in the material world, not because she wants us to suffer, but because her job is to make sure that when we say, oh yes, Krishna, I'm yours, and I am your servant, and I'm ready to um, you know, leave this material world, she makes sure that that is exactly what we really and truly want to do. So she puts all sorts of tests in front of us. And so Maya can be very strong. That attachment to material possessions, that desire to enjoy for ourselves and not for Krishna is very strong. And we've been conditioned lifetime after lifetime to pursue our own bodily needs, our own bodily comfort and desires and pleasure. Um, And that's a very hard conditioning to break. So we've talked about before where you know, on this path of Krishna consciousness, we can falter. We talked about that last time, where that's kind of the norm. That's to be expected. But the the duty of the spiritual master is to be there when we're ready to come back, when we're ready to pick ourselves up. Um, I've heard it said in one of my favorite um, lectures by my guru, Tamal Krishna Goswami, he was saying that 
The spiritual master, the guru, knows that our true position is servant of Krishna, that our true position is to serve. So when he sees us falter, he's there, he'll pick us up again. And if we fall, he'll pick us up again. And if we fall, he'll pick us up again and again and again. Because he knows that we will achieve and attain this true knowledge of we are servants of Krishna and you know that is where we want to head. Um, he, he relates it to a parent watching their child, you know, learning to walk. You know, they don't make fun of the kid and be like, "Oh my God, you're such a failure! You fell your first step, right?" No parent does that. They encourage, "Oh wow, you took a step. Let's see, if, you know, let's have you take another one." And if the kid falls, they pick him up. You know, they pick him up again and again, and they're very patient and compassionate because that's really what our spiritual master wants us to do. He takes us out of this darkest ignorance and he opens our darkened eyes, right? And he fills our heart with transcendental knowledge. That's what we um, recite and, and sing every morning during Guru Puja, Guru Puja is that our spiritual master, he's an ocean of mercy, right? He he's, has all this transcendental knowledge and he gives it to us. He's the connection between us and God, because sometimes it's very difficult. We can't approach God by ourselves. We have to have someone vouching for us, right? We have to, you know, our guru says, you know what? This person's real. They're sincere. This, they're sincere in their heart, and they are looking for true, absolute knowledge. And so because of the mercy of our guru, Krishna gives us mercy. And when we get the mercy of Krishna, we're able to do so much more, Right? We take one step towards Krishna, and Krishna takes like ten steps towards us. But that's all we have to do. All we have to do is take one step. And sometimes that's hard to do because we want to take one step towards ourselves or towards Maya. And so really that's where that's where we want to spend our knowledge. It's good to learn other things, right? I spent a lot of years studying medicine. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that that knowledge is useless, but really what I understand from that is that this body is temporary, and there's always going to be disease. Right? So while we are working on healing the body, why not also work on healing the soul, right? Doing, taking steps for the soul. So, you know, it's not just medicine for the body. It's medicine for who we truly are. And that is what chanting um, the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra is. You know, when we take our vows, when we commit to our spiritual master, we take a vow to not do certain things, but the only vow we take to do something is to chant 16 rounds of the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra every single day. And it's not just, you know, oh, well, I have to do this. or You know, it's our connection. It's how we understand. We talked about the devotional processes um, of obtaining love for God and chant, hearing and chanting are two key of them, two key part components of devotional process, of learning who we are. And that's what we do when we chant japa. So, you know, we can always focus on making sure that our japa is, our mantra meditation is very focused. It's not easy. I mean, I talk about this almost all the time and I still struggle, right? Like I still struggle to not do anything else when I'm chanting my rounds, but just focus on hearing the name and chanting the name. 
And, you know, the other day I was um, on my phone when I was chanting. And, you know, sometimes when I'm sitting there, my puppy, she thinks that, oh, this is time to play. And she wants to play. But if I have one hand in a bead bag and the other one with the phone, you know, I don't have a hand free for her. So she gets really upset. But I was thinking, you know, if I just have one hand free for her to just, you know, not even pay attention but to play, then she gets to hear the Maha Mantra nicely as well. Um, And sometimes, you know, if the puppy is sleeping, then the cat will sit on my lap while I'm chanting. And so the cat gets to hear the Maha Mantra as well. And, you know, those are just two, and I have a bird, so the bird also gets to hear, although the bird gets very mad when I chant the Maha Mantra near him. Because I guess he gets very jealous. But, you know, that's just the living entities that I can see. Right? There's so many living entities that I may not be able to see. There could be small bugs. We talked about last time that there's trillions of bacteria that live in our body. When we chant the Maha Mantra, all of these entities get to hear the Maha Mantra as well. So, one, of course we want to do it for ourselves to make sure that we're liberated. But just... The side effect of that, you know, if we chant nicely, then everybody benefits. You know, every living entity around us benefits. If we're chanting at a park, you know, not too loud or quietly, um, people around us can hear it. They can also benefit. I remember one time I was, um, this is when my dad was uh, fighting cancer and he was in the hospital and I had gone outside to take a walk and I had my beads and I was chanting and this lady came up, you know, she was, she came and sat down next to me and she was like, oh, what are you doing? Is there, are those prayer beads? And we started talking and she was like, oh, well, I want to hear what you're chanting, right? And so she heard the Maha Mantra and, you know, she was interested and that can only happen because I was already doing what I was doing, right? I didn't go out there with the purpose of let me find people to talk about the Maha Mantra with, it was that I was already doing it and it attracted someone's attention, right? Because when true knowledge presents itself, you know, people tend to perk up. They can understand it. They can hear it. And we've also um, read Prabhupada say in many different instances that, you know, true knowledge is love. Krishna is love. And that's really what we're trying to, we're all trying to achieve. We all want to feel loved and we all, we all want to love. And that comes from our relationship with Krishna, right? Even though we, you know, I often say, we say that we're servants of Krishna, but really we have a relationship of, with Krishna and that relationship is filled with love, whether it's a relationship as, you know, master and servant, as friend and friend, as lovers, as parents and child, and, you know, as um, whatever type of brotherly um, love, whatever type of love there is, whatever type of relationship we're in, there's love. And love is the center of it all. And really, that's when we chant our, our, mant- our um, mantra meditation of japa, that's what we're trying to foster is that sense of love for Krishna. And, you know, it's not that we awakened his love for us. His love for us is there. He's just waiting for us to realize it and turn towards him and realize that we love him as well. And so, really, that's 
that's really the basis of knowledge. And that's what we were discussing today, that everything that we do, you know, if you have music, um, then you want to play music that glorifies Krishna. If you can paint or do some type of art, you want art to glorify Krishna. If you were an architect and you want to build nice structures like temples or, you know, nice houses for the devotees to stay in. Um, so whatever it is, you know, we can always find a way to bring Krishna into it. And sometimes it's hard in the material world when we're, you know, doing something that seems very, you know, unlikely, like a street sweeper, right? But if we are meditating on Krishna while we're doing our duties, and if we are um, using the money that we earn in service to Krishna, whether it's to take care of ourselves as devotees, or take care of other devotees, or donate, all of that is service of Krishna. So whatever we're doing, we're offering to him. That becomes the key um, and the perfection of knowledge, is... um, to dedicate our lives to Krishna. What questions do you have for me? Okay. All right, and we'll stop here. Zarantara Srimad Bhagavatam ki.